0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Lord, as we open your word this morning and we look at this story of Nebuchadnezzar and we think about this theme of humility and pride, Lord, we just pray you would humble our hearts right now. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't require the kind of humbling that Nebuchadnezzar experienced, but that you would, by your spirit right now, humble our hearts. Humble our hearts to be willing to receive your word. Help our hearts to be good soil, ready for the implanted word of God. Lord, we pray that as your word goes deep into our hearts, that it would grow up into all kinds of beautiful fruit for your glory and for your namesake, Lord. We pray that in this valley, in our lives, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, Lord, that you would be seen to be what you are, glorious and grand and beautiful and desirable. Lord, we pray that all sin and all rebellion would look to us like sand in our mouth compared to having a banquet before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this summer we've been going through a series in the Old Testament called Old Testament Family Reunion. And we've been uh, digging in and looking at different... Of our spiritual ancestors that lived um, before the time of Christ. And uh, most of these ancestors, no surprise, have been Jewish, right? Most of our spiritual ancestors in the Old Testament are Jewish. We had an exception a few weeks ago. We looked at the life of Rahab the prostitute, who was, uh, who was not Jewish and came to the Lord and came to, to know him. And this week we're going to look at another non-Jewish family member of ours, and that family member is um, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, and, and I mean That 6th century B.C. Babylonian king, super famous throughout history. And you might be a little bit surprised. You might say, wait a minute, Eric, are you saying that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer? And I believe, yes, he did. I think he wasn't certainly in chapters 1 through 3 of Daniel. But Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony and confession of faith. It's a really unique chapter, and you're going to really enjoy it. And these are the last words we have of Nebuchadnezzar. So you could be cynical, and you could say, yeah, but, you know, I know that guy. He probably, like, faded away again. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible leads us seeing his confession of faith. So we have to believe it um nebuchadnezzar was the most unlikely of converts i mean especially if you live back then um he's this babylonian king he's the one that destroyed jerusalem destroyed the temple in 587 bc he's the one that enslaved israel for 70 years including daniel and his friends Uh, the prophet jeremiah called nebuchadnezzar a, a, a lion and the destroyer of nations Okay, so the destroyer of nations coming to believe in the God of Israel. And Daniel 4 is, Daniel 4, you know what it really is? It's like an Old Testament equivalent of the conversion of Saul to Paul. You know, here you have this great persecutor of God's people being humbled and becoming one of them, and that's what we'll see in here. Um, The book of Daniel, I would highly recommend that you spend some time in it. It's a wonderful and beautiful and interesting book. There's a lot of distinct things about it. For example, the, the book of Daniel is partially, the first part is historical. The second part is prophetic, so it's a mixture of a prophetic book and a historical book. In fact, the Jews file this in their Bible in the area of the histories, and we file it in the area of the prophets in our arrangement. And so it makes like kind of an organizational freak kind of crazy because it's like, where do I file it? You know, it kind of goes right in between. It's got half and half. The book of Daniel is a mixture of prose and poetry. That makes it fun. The book of Daniel is written both in Hebrew and Aramaic. So that's kind of interesting. It's the only Old Testament book that's, that's got that distinction. And the book of Daniel is partly written by a famous Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. This chapter 4 is actually his contribution, his writing in it. So you actually have a Gentile writer in the Old Testament, which I think is very unusual. And it starts off sounding like an epistle. Look at verse 1 of Daniel 4. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. What does that sound like? Sounds like the beginning of an epistle, right? And and this is the destroyer of nations saying, peace be multiplied to you all. You know, like what a change of heart. And Nebuchadnezzar wrote this, Daniel chapter 4, as a letter to proclaim to the world the good news of God's salvation. Look at verse 2. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. You notice this all in first person. This is straight from Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I love that he starts it off with, I'm going to tell you a story of what God's done for me. Because what follows is this brutal humiliation of this man. And he's like, it's what God did for me. You know, have you ever been in that situation? Do you have a part in your life that you look back on that was brutal and humbling, but you look back on it as something God did for you, a good thing God did for you? That's what Nebuchadnezzar's is saying. He's saying, this was good for me. Like in Psalm 19 when it says, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He's saying, this was a good thing for me. I've had those too. The recession was mine. God saw fit to, you know, remove half of our yearly income. And it was something that was good for me. is what God had done for me. It was important in my life, in my development, in my drawing nearer to him. Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. So here we are at this Old Testament family reunion. And just imagine like at night, there's like a campfire time where we all tell our testimonies. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, okay, let me tell my testimony now. And that's what Daniel chapter 4 is. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Nebuchadnezzar was doing extremely well in every part of his life. Nebuchadnezzar was an amazing warrior. In uh, 607 BC, he destroyed Assyria. In 605 BC, he beat up Egypt. His dominion extends to every place he knows of. There's nobody that he knows of out there that he hasn't either conquered or could conquer if he wanted to, if he wanted to bother with it, Right? Nebuchadnezzar was also an amazing builder. We have these interesting little terracotta cylinders. There's a lot of archaeology based around this guy. These terracotta cylinders have writing on them, and they describe all of his building projects. So he had, you know, three royal palaces. He, had a, he made a public museum, probably the first public museum for people. He... Um, built temples. He built a bridge over the Euphrates, not like a rickety little thing, but like a very impressive bridge over the Euphrates. Um, They found his uh, Ishtar Gate, which is this big, beautiful gate with these um, beautiful blue tiles on it and stuff. Um, And he's also really well known for his hanging gardens. Have you guys heard about that, the hanging gardens of Babylon. This is one of the seven wonders of the natural world. The seven wonders of the sorry no, the natural of the ancient world. It was seven, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and what that was is it was a um, it was an ancient traveler's list of must see places. Okay, this was like an ancient bucket list. You have to go see the Hanging Gardens if you're ever in that area. That kind of a thing, right? And what were these things? It was these. He had built these terraces. So it was kind of like kind of like buildings, but they were terraced. And he had all kinds of trees and plants and waterfalls in it. He made basically like these garden mountains in the desert. And he, it said that he made them for his wife. It was like a garden city in the desert. It was Eden-like. It was like a really, really nice resort in Palm Springs. So here he is out in modern day what is Iraq with this lush, green, beautiful city. I mean, he had built something pretty amazing here. His life was good. The walls of Babylon were were said to be 30 feet thick and over 60 feet tall in some places. I mean, this is in ancient times. We're talking 2,600 years ago he had all this stuff built. Nebuchadnezzar's city of Babylon is still the largest archaeology site in the Middle East. And see, Nebuchadnezzar had all, all the reasons to say, my life is good, right? My life is really good. His life was good. He was prosperous, but he was also proud. And God zeroes in on that, and he's going to humble him. Now, we might not think we have much in common with an ancient king like Nebuchadnezzar, but it turns out that we have a lot more in common with him than the people that lived during that time. Right? Here's a guy with a kingdom living in ease and prosperity. We have a lot more in common with the king of Babylon than we do with the people that lived during his time. We live, basically, as Babylonian kings and queens. We have better food than he had. We have better health care than he had. We have better anesthesia than he had. We have better, not right now, but we have better air conditioning than he had. We have uh, better um, travel than he had. We have safer lives than he had. Would you want to trade places? Here's the guy, the most powerful man in, in 600 BC. Would you want to trade places with him right now? Well, maybe until you needed a tooth extracted or a shot of antibiotics, right? Like. We live in the way he lived. We live with a kingdom. We all have a kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar does. You have a kingdom. I have a kingdom. Your kids have a kingdom. The only question is, will we submit our kingdom to his kingdom? And guys, pride tells us we don't have to, right? Pride tells us we don't have to submit our kingdom to his kingdom. Pride convinces us that we're self-made. We believe in that as a doctrine in America, that we're self-made, that everything I have is because of my own hard work. I earned it. Americans believe that, right? All this stuff, this is my own. If somebody wanted to work hard like me, they could have what I have, right? We believe that we're self-made. Pride convinces us that we're secure, that our possessions insulate us from anybody being able to humble us and force us to do things we don't want to do. We feel secure. And because of that, pride convinces us that we're sovereign. Sovereign means that we rule, that we decide that we choose the laws for our own life. I mean, you see that in all the memes, you see that on social media, you know, write your own life, tell your own story, you know, dream your dream, do your thing, right? You are sovereign. If, you're, if you feel like you earned everything and you're not really um, responsible to anybody that gave it to you, and if you feel like you're secure and can't be humbled, then I'm the ruler of my life. I'm above God's rule, I'm sovereign. Now, you wouldn't say that outright, But pride ultimately says things like this, I'm the one to finally determine what is practical and reasonable and good for my life. So you might read the Word of God, and then you decide if it's practical, reasonable, and good for you. Do you do that? You read God's Word, and you go, okay, I see what it says, but is this really practical? Is this reasonable to do? Would this really be good for me? I decide. That's my own sovereignty. That's me believing that I'm sovereign. And so we'll hear ourselves saying things like, I know what God's word says, but I'm kind of an exception, right? You ever done that in your mind? Or, you know, I know know what God's word says, but I have a peace about what I'm doing. I have a peace about it. You know where that peace comes from? The devil, right? I mean, straight up, right? I have a peace about it. Or, you know, God would want me to be happy, which means God would want me to do what I want to do, which the Bible doesn't say, by the way. I don't know if you realize that. It doesn't say that. Um, or, you know what? God will forgive me, it's His job. You ever thought that? That's a dangerous thought to think. Guys, things like that show that we believe that we're self-made, secure and sovereign, the same way that Nebuchadnezzar felt, but it's all an illusion, and Nebuchadnezzar is about to see that. Look at verse four. He was all comfortable, and then verse four, "I saw a dream that made me afraid, and I laid in the bed. The fancies and visions of my head alarm me. And then he looks all around. He has this dream. It scares him. He looks for interpreters. He calls all the people. Look at verse six. He calls all the wise men of Babylon. He looks for the magicians and enchanters and astrologers. It's a crazy group of random people to come and tell him what his dream means. And none of them know, which is interesting because the dream's not that hard to interpret, but they can't. They can't interpret it. Um, and then Daniel comes in. He goes, Finally, Daniel came, right? And I want to just take a moment to highlight something cool that's happening in the relationship between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. I know that sounds strange. I believe that something really cool is happening in their relationship. This chapter, chapter 4, actually occurs probably 25 or 30 years after chapters 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so this is a long-term relationship that Daniel's had with this uh, Babylonian ruler. In those first chapters, Daniel and his friends were young. Maybe they were teenagers or something like that. They had been abducted from their homes when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed their country, destroyed their temple, and then he took. It says all the all the smartest. All the brightest of the land and the best looking. You know, he wanted them to be smart and good looking. And he took them and he took them into his government and wanted to utilize, you know, their their resources in his government. And see how here we are 25 to 30 years later from chapter 3 and we've got middle-aged Daniel. So he's maybe, you know, 45, 50 years old. And he's been in this decades-long relationship with his Babylonian captor, Nebuchadnezzar. And I think God's doing a couple of really cool things in their relationship. First of all, is that Nebuchadnezzar really respects Daniel's service. Look at verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream." that I saw, and the interpretation. Now he says here, you know, he says, calls him by that, you know, deity name to Daniel, and also says, you know, the spirit of the holy gods in you, you know, obviously a lot of confused theology here. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's current theology when he writes this. He's writing it the way he thought back when he received the vision before he was converted, and so he's confused, and that's wild too, right? After that many years of being together, he's still got a confused theology like that. Um, but he's telling this story through his lens. Nebuchadnezzar respects Daniel. You can see that he respects his faithful service to him. He even made D- Daniel the chief of magicians, which is so funny for a Hebrew prophet. I mean, a Hebrew prophet, I'll give you a title. I'm going to make you chief of my magicians. So Daniel's probably like, oh, okay, fine. You know, they give him a little tag for his office, and he's like, yeah, I know what it says. It's, that's his idea. Um, But Daniel really cares about Nebuchadnezzar's well-being. After he hears the vision and that it's going to be bad for Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 19, it says that Daniel was alarmed and dismayed. And I don't think that's because Daniel's afraid that he's got to tell bad news to the king. Daniel's name is synonymous with courage. It's not his MO to be worried about that. He's worried about what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He cares about this guy after 30 years of knowing him. He cares about him. You see his concern later at the end of verse 19. He says, My Lord... May this dream be for those who hate you and the interpretation for your enemies. He's like, I wish this was for someone else. And then after he tells him what the bad news is from the dream, he says to him in verse 27, "Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin from practice and practice righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." Get this. Daniel has true affection and care for Nebuchadnezzar. The guy who destroyed his country, the guy who put him, has got him in in captivity. There's, I think, what you could call friendship developing. Now, their friendship has had rough patches, like the time that Nebuchadnezzar tried to burn Daniel's friends in an oven alive. That was rough, but that was thirty years ago. Okay, and things have gotten better. There's been time in the relationship for it to develop. But like, uh, in and. It's really interesting because you see Daniel's real care for Nebuchadnezzar. And you see that Nebuchadnezzar cares about Daniel too. Look at verse 19. When Daniel's dismayed and disturbed when he hears this vision, it's cool because Nebuchadnezzar almost seems to be comforting him here. He said, the king says, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He's like, Daniel, you know, I can take it. Like, don't don't stress about this. You know, there seems to be some concern his way too. So here we have this middle-aged Daniel, 45, 50 years old, still loving and serving a king that doesn't have a clue about the Lord. And it's a friendship that seems to go both ways. And it's a great example to us, guys, of re- long-term relationships with non-Christians. You should have them. You know? This is one way that we share the gospel. This is one way we minister to people, is by long-term faithfulness to people who don't know the Lord. And I hope you have lots of friendships like this. I mean, it had been 25, 30 years that they knew each other, and Nebuchadnezzar's still calling in all these random people to do the vision, he's still confusing his theology. He had to be thinking like, oh, man, this guy's never going to get it. He is never going to come to the Lord, right? This story of Nebuchadnezzar reminds us to never lose hope. God can save and humble anyone. He can save and humble anyone. I hope you have several relationships like this. Daniel's faithful to appoint Nebuchadnezzar to the Lord for 30 years. And what's really cool about this is it mirrors God's love for those who don't know him. You know, because this friendship is a gift from God to Nebuchadnezzar. And this story reminds us that, ne- that, that the Lord loves Not just Israel, but he loves the nations. Even in the Old Testament, right? We saw Rahab get saved, and we see him reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, and and extending grace to him. Um, Even in the Old Testament, God was seeking the Gentiles. In, In fact, the Babylonian exile wasn't just about punishing Israel. It was about punishing Israel. It was also about blessing Babylon. Do you realize that? God actually sent these people in there to bless Babylon, in fact, listen to the instructions that Jeremiah gave the Babylonian um, captives in Jeremiah 29.4. He said this to them. Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I send into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this would be people like Daniel. This is what he tells them to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. And then listen to this. This is what their instructions were. But seek the welfare of the city. What city? Babylon. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Daniel and his friends were in exile in Babylon to bless Babylon. They weren't just there out of punishment. They were there to bless Babylon. We're, in September, going to start 1 Peter, and 1 Peter starts off, and it addresses Christians as the elect exiles, the chosen exiles. That's what we are too. We're exiles in a place like Babylon, and we're here to bless Babylon. Daniel was, it gives us a great vision here of how to bless non-Christians through long-term friendships. Don't wall yourself off towards people that don't know the Lord after it's been decade after decade. God has a purpose in it. And the blessing goes both ways. I mean, I could just think of friends of mine, you know, one of the veterinarian friends of mine, we've been friends for like 18 years, not a believer, not even close. We talked about the gospel a lot. Super enriching person to be around. Super huge blessing to me. One of the reasons I can preach on Sunday morning is because that guy will cover our emergencies during this time. So I'm not like, get a page. Hey, uh, I got to go, guys. You know, like that would be awkward, right? But he covers those things. I got another friend from vet school. We've been friends for over 20 years. Very liberal guy. Not at all Christian. Very clearly, he's an atheist. Awesome friend. So the blessing goes both ways. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian this morning and a Daniel brought you here. If you're not a Christian and a Daniel brought here, if you're not a Christian this morning, do you have a Daniel-type friend? The kind of friend that goes, want to go to Bible study? Nope. Want to go to Harvest Crusade? Nope. Want to listen to the sermon? Nope. Want to listen to my Christian hip-hop music? Nope. Want to read this book? Nope. Want to come to church? All right, fine. The Daniel in your life, guys, is, is, a, is a gift from God. This is a gift to you. This is an extension of God's love to you to give you a friend like that that will harass you like that. And we're thankful that they brought you here this morning. But um, Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream. Look at verse 10. The vision in my head as I laid in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heavens. And it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant. And it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed by it. I saw in the vision of my head, as I lay in my bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, an angel, came down from heaven... And he proclaimed with a loud voice, saying, Chop down the tree and lob off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots be in the earth, bound with iron and bronze, amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him, that's interesting, let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts. In the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. I love that term for those angels. The decree, the decision of the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he wills and sets over at the lowliest of men. And then Daniel tells him what the interpretation is in verse 20. He says this to to Nebuchadnezzar. He goes, okay, I've got a a dark (laughs) interpretation for you, but here it is. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant, and whose was food for all, upon which the beasts of the field found their shade in whom the branches of the heavens lived, the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And so he says, You are that tree. Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. You are that huge, strong tree with the leaves that give shade to the world. And you can think about all his building projects and all the people that were able to live in his garden city that he made and his kingdom that spread all throughout. And he's saying, you are the one that gives abundant fruit and food for all. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar going like, okay, sounds good so far. Like, so I'm like really big and wonderful and a blessing to many, right? And then he goes, oh, but the lumberjack part. Verse 23, And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its root in the earth, bound with band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation. O king... It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men. You shall dwell in the field as a beast. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven for seven periods of time shall pass over you. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whomever he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you for the time that you know that the heaven rules. That heaven rules. So Daniel tells him, God's going to chop you down. He's going to chop you down to a stump, and he's going to run all the rest of you through a wood chipper. And then he's going to put a band over the top of your stump so you can't grow. And you're going to sit out in the field covered in dew. You know, this palace dweller is going to be out in the field, wet in the rain, alone, and forgotten. Why is he doing it to him? It says in verse 25, until he knows that the most high rules. This was Nebuchadnezzar's pride being cut down. Painful it is, but needed. And then look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar continues his testimony. He says this, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the rooftop of the palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, this is what he was saying. He's walking along. He said, 12 months of warning, walking around the top of his... Uh, his house, his royal palace, and he says, Is not this the great Babylon, which I built with my mighty power as a residence and for glory of my majesty? And while these words were still in the king's mouth, he fell from A voice fell from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and shall dwell in the field with the beasts, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, and his hair grew long like like eagle's feathers, and his nails grew like birds' claws. <laughs> God touches him, and he's insane. He's insane, and he ends up out in the field. Now, God had waited 12 months, and Daniel warned him. And maybe he did the warning for a little while, but not for long. And so it comes upon him in his pride. God knocks him down. And so there you have, mighty Nebuchadnezzar living out in the field. He's lost his palace, he's lost his kingdom, he's lost his mind. You know, he's got the, the mind of a cow, basically. He's out there just eating grass. He's just gone nuts. Um, he's, his hair is all grown out like eagle's feathers, it says. His, his fingernails are grown out like bird's claws. And he's wet out there in the rain alone. Guys, Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was self-made, secure, and sovereign. And he learned that he is dependent, he is delicate, and he is subject to God, the true king. Isn't it crazy that we would ever resist God that when we know what he says that we would ever be proud enough to resist God? There's an old saying, your arms are too short to box with God. Isn't that true? Your arms are too short to box with God. One touch and you can lose everything. You guys realize how delicate you are? I mean, one word to Nebuchadnezzar and his whole brain unraveled. Can't do much without your brain, Right? Anything in our lives could fall apart in an instant at God's word. And yet we're like, I don't want to do what he wants me to do. And it's like, are you crazy? (laughs) That's crazy. Look at what he does in Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar stayed like that for seven periods, it said. Could be seven years, could be seven seasons. If it's seven seasons, it's almost two years. still a long time. It was long enough for his hair to grow all long and crazy and his fingernails to grow out. It was long enough to humble the most powerful man in the world. And so there he is out there. And it's amazing, guys, that they don't replace him. You know, when all this goes back, he gets his kingdom back. They don't replace him. They don't go like, okay, who else are we going to make king? They kind of leave him out there and wait. (laughs) You know, and you can imagine foreign dignitaries coming and going like, hey, I have an appointment with Nebuchadnezzar. And they're like, oh, yeah, uh..." He's on sabbatical. And they're like, who's the crazy person out back? And you're like, uh, I don't know. Have you seen our hanging gardens? Let me show you our hanging gardens, right? But they wait for him. And when all hope seems lost, Nebuchadnezzar's reason returns. What's his turning point? What makes Nebuchadnezzar's reason return? I mean, here's a guy that's out there eating grass for years. It says in verse 24, 34, look at it. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, what? lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned. He looked up, guys. He looked up. That's how his reason returned. You know that's really hard for cows to do? He didn't become a cow, but he had a cow's mind. I was talking to my friend of mine. I'm a horse vet, but he's a, he's a dairy vet. And I said, they don't look up, do they? And he goes, you know, my friend Steve, he's going to be here next week. He said, you know, one t- a couple times I kind of picked their head up and pointed up, and they seemed real surprised, like they'd never seen the sky. Cattle don't look up. Cattle don't look up because their threats don't come from the sky, right? There's no pterodactyls to like carry them off, right? Their threats don't come from the sky. Cows look down, cows look side to side. Nebuchadnezzar has spent his whole life looking down and side to side like a beast. And as long as he did it, his madness increased. And it wasn't just during the time of his madness that all he did was look down and side to side. He never looks up. Nebuchadnezzar spent his whole life looking down and side to side. He'd look down on those he felt superior to. He would look down from his palace on all his possessions. He would look side to side to see if he had any rivals to his glory. He he would spend his gaze looking at himself in the mirror and his own greatness. And we do the same thing, guys, until God humbles us. He refused to look up, and his madness, his pride, increased. But then in verse 37, we see for the first time Nebuchadnezzar looks up. He looks up to heaven. He looks up to God, and he says, And my reason returned. Let me ask you this. What does mental health look like? What does it look like for someone's reason to return? What does mental health look like? Look at verse 34. Look at what mental health looks like. At the end of the day, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned, and then what does it look like? And I blessed the Lord Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. That's what mental health looks like. Mental health looks like praise. It looks like blessing and and honoring and praising God. You know, C.S. Lewis said that. He said that praise is inner health made audible. Inner health made audible. And that's what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. He said this, he said, the world rings of praise. Lovers praise their mistresses. Readers praise their favorite poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite games. There's praise of weather and wines and dishes and actors and motors and horses and colleges and countries. There's praise of historical personages and children and flowers and mountains and rare stamps and rare beetles and sometimes even politicians and scholars. And he said, I notice somehow that the humblest and the most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Let me read that last part to you again. I've noticed that the humblest And the most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. That's what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He has inner health now, and praise is audible. His reason returns to him. And I just want to ask you guys, how much of your day do you spend looking up? You know, we're people that look down a lot, don't we? We're little people looking down into little screens, right? Thanks for that text, Brett. Um, Looking down into little screens, looking to see if maybe our followers will prop up our our feelings about ourselves, right? We look down. How much of your day do you spend looking up? How much of your day do you spend in praise? It's inner health made audible. That's how we know how healthy we are. What does Nebuchadnezzar see when he looks up? He's in this distress, he's a disaster, he needs a manicure (laughs) big time. And he finally looks up to heaven. What does he see to find cause for praising God? Look at verse 34. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What does he see here? He praises God for his sovereignty. We need to do that too. Praise God for his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is his reign. God reigns as a king over everything and everyone all the time. Okay? That's what it means to be God. God is sovereign. He is king. He reigns over everything and everyone all the time. If you have a different view of God, it's a different God. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. say, that sounds exhausting. I say, I know. But he does. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Every single fiber of this world. Praise God for his sovereignty. Praise God for his freedom. God's freedom means that he is free. God is free to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whatever he wants and whoever he wants. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with the world and with us. Look at verse 35, the second half. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. That's us. And none can say to his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does whatever he wants Whenever he wants. It's called his freedom. Praise him for his freedom. Praise God for his righteousness. Look at verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar says that he praises and extols and honors God. And he says, for all his works are right and his ways are just. That's God's righteousness. Praise him for that. God's righteousness means that God always acts within accordance of what is right. Everything he does is in accordance with what is right. And guess what? He's the final standard of what is right. So he doesn't go like, hey, what should I do? Let me consult this law over here. He is the standard of what is right. He always does what is right. Praise him for his righteousness. Praise him for his ability to humble us. Look at the end of verse 37. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God uses his free and righteous rule over the whole creation to humble and save sinners like you and me. He could use that power any way he wants, but he uses it to humble and save sinners like you and me. To rescue us from our beastly pride. He can do that. Praise him for that. Nebuchadnezzar loves the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation because he realizes there was no other way I was going to come to faith in the God of Israel. Right? He wasn't like thinking about it. He wasn't like you know, he got a track on his door, and he's like, you know, maybe I should really humble myself. No, like God had to really intervene in this guy's life to, to knock him over and bring him to faith. And so Nebuchadnezzar saw the glory and grandeur of God, and it freed him from his pride. And it'll free us from our pride, too. How do we get freed from pride? It's tricky, right? Because you're like, I want to be more humble, you know? And then you see some progress, and then you're like, man, I'm feeling a lot more humble. And then you're not. You know, it's like, this is tricky. You don't really get humble by trying to be humble, right? What do you get humbled by? You get humbled by seeing the greatness and grandeur of God. Guys, you guys weren't made to look at yourselves in the mirror and feel self-made and secure and sovereign. You weren't made to look down. You were made to look up. You were made to stand before God and behold him and feel your smallness. You were made to look at God, the grandeur of God, and feel little and fragile and subject and worship him. Got the whole thing backwards if you're trying to, like, make yourself feel better by making yourself feel bigger. We're made to feel small. Small in front of God. That's what makes our souls happy. G.K. Chesterton said this, How much larger would your life be if yourself could be made smaller in it? Isn't that true? How much larger could your life be if you were smaller in it? How do you become smaller? By beholding the glory and grandeur of God. This is where mental health comes from. You know, unfortunately, we, we spend our time so much looking down, looking at ourselves but you were actually, and you guys know this actually, you know that you were made to stand before something big and feel small and like it. You know this. You guys been to the Grand Canyon? How'd you feel about yourself? You found, felt small, didn't you? How'd, it, how'd that feel? It felt good, didn't it? it felt good to feel small. It felt good to stand before that and feel small. Have you seen these images from NASA of like these stars? Stars that are... Like way bigger than our star. Make our, star look, our sun look tiny. Or these distant nebular galaxies. How do you feel when you look at those? Feel good about yourself? You feel small, right? How do you feel about that? It feels good, right? You were made for that. And if you feel happy and healthy when you're looking at those, that shows you what you're made for. Let me ask you this. When do you feel better? You feel better staring at the Grand Canyon or looking in the mirror? Which one? Dan's not Sure let that hang there that's what we were made for guys we were made to see the grandeur and the glory of God and if the Grand Canyon makes you happy to see or some distant galaxy makes you happy to see that imagine your heart how happy and healthy your heart will be when you get to stand before the one who made all these things Psalm 8 says it's his finger work oh that nebula you like that I did that with my fingers right it's awesome right it's his finger work you know, Daniel actually got to see a vision of the glory of God. Take a look at Daniel 7.9. The Ancient of Days. This is what we're made to behold. Look at this. And as I looked, Daniel 7.9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was pure as wool, and his throne was fiery flames. He is a flame throne. And its wheels, the wheels of his throne, were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And then listen to this. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the, and the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Guys, this is God's glory. This is what the Old Testament, the Old Testament word for glory is kavod. It means weighty. This is the weightiness of God. Guys, so often we use the word God and we mean some sort of like, you know, grandfatherly character in the sky. Like, this is God, the ancient of days on a throne of fire. Like, this is what your soul was meant to live off, of seeing the glory of God, His weightiness. He was meant to land heavy on us, to see His glory. And yet, when we see His glory, what do we feel? We feel a need for mercy, too, don't we? Look at verse 10 in Daniel 7. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. You good with appearing in that courtroom? I'm not. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I've worshipped and served myself rather than the Creator. I need mercy, and you need mercy too. And so we're humbled when we see His grandeur and glory, but we're also humbled when we see His mercy. You know, God is so amazing that He is not only able to humble us in order to save us, He was able to humble Himself in order to save us. Let me say that again he's not only able to humble us to save us, he was able to humble himself to save us. It says that in Philippians 2, right? Philippians 2, 5, it says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is God himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only is able to humble us to save us, he was able to humble himself to save us. And when you see that word cross to us, we think necklace or something like that. What you should be thinking, you should be thinking wood, you should be thinking nails, you should be thinking blood, you should be thinking naked hanging on it, you should be thinking people spitting at him, gawking at him, you should think of him twisting hour after hour, unable to breathe, he has to push himself up on his nails to breathe, you should be thinking the worst kind of agonal, that word agonal, the word excruciating, right, that word excruciating comes from the word crux, which is cross, You should be thinking of the nails when we take communion. You should be thinking of nails probably bigger than these. You should be thinking of them going right through the wrist. You should be thinking of them hanging there, dragging there. He humbled himself, not just to become a man, but to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus is so beautiful when you put him against the backdrop of Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was driven from his palace to be humbled and punished for his sin. Jesus voluntarily left his palace, which was way more posh, left his palace to be humbled and punished for our sin. Nebuchadnezzar's pride, you know, like all of our pride, he put himself where only God deserved to be. Jesus, in his humility, put himself where only we deserve to be, in the place of God's wrath, hanging there on the cross. And you know what's so cool, too, is after after his suffering, Jesus, just like Nebuchadnezzar, got his kingdom back. Because Nebuchadnezzar did get his kingdom back. After that time, he was humble. He got his kingdom back. Jesus, too, got his kingdom back. He was received back into his palace after his resurrection and ascension. And Philippians talks about that, too. Because he humbled himself to death, therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. not awesome? And you know what? Daniel got to see that, too. This guy is lucky. Take a look at Daniel 7.13. Daniel got to see Jesus' ascension from the heaven side. That's what Daniel 7.13 is about. You know, when so Jesus died, he was raised three days later, spent 40 days showing himself to be well to everyone, and then he ascended and he just kind of went up into the sky, right? Well, Daniel actually got to see a vision of him returning back to his kingdom and his palace. On the other side, take a look at Daniel 7.13. I saw in a night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one like a son of man. That was Jesus' favorite term for himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So how is, our, how is our pride defeated? How are we freed from pride? We're freed from by looking up, by seeing the grandeur and the mercy of God. And we see the grandeur and the mercy of God most clearly in who? In the face of Jesus Christ. Look to him. I just want to ask you guys this morning, have you been humbled by God and surrendered your life to this king? Surrender your life to the king I just described, the kind of king that humbled himself to die for you. Have you turned from your pride and your self-rule and your supposed sovereignty and your, your little kingdom? Have you turned from that to receive mercy from the true king of heaven? If so, we invite you in these next few ta- songs to, to take the Lord's Supper, which we have here. And you can just come forward and take it. You can take it separately or together. Or you can stand, you can sit, however you want to do it. But the Lord's Supper is a time to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a time to take our eyes off ourselves and look up and behold the man upon the cross. To behold his body hanging there. That's what the bread symbolizes, his body hanging there to die for your sins. And the cup, which represents his blood. It's a time to look up and remember. It's a time to look up and receive mercy. And it's a time to look up and be fed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your wonderful, deep, layered, mysterious, enjoyable, deep word. And the way it points directly to who you are and what you've done, what you're like. And we pray, Lord, that this week you would make us a people that look up. That we wouldn't spend hours after hours after hours of our day looking down. Thinking about ourselves. Think about how people have wronged us. Think about our problems. Or thinking about our accomplishments, or thinking about our righteousness, or any of those things we might think about, Lord. Help us to look up. Lord, we have been beasts before you, our pride has been beastly, our thinking has been deranged health is to look upon you and to listen to you and to love you and enjoy you. Help us to be those kind of people. Father, we pray you break all of our addictions to ourself and all of our addictions to distraction. Help us to see the one who satisfies our souls, the one we were made to look upon, which is you. I pray, Lord, as we worship you, as we take communion, Lord, we pray that you would be honored and blessed by this. Lord, you've come to meet us in communion. That's why it's called communion. And we pray, Lord, that it would be a blessing to your heart to meet with us. Lord, we pray that we bring humble hearts to the table. We bring humble hearts to worship. And we would just explode with this with the knowledge that we have had mercy, found mercy and love in your Son. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.